Having kids is awesome, but raising them is challenging and filled with ups and downs. Sometimes the downs threaten to drown out the ups. In short, having kids is risky. We get it. We're parents too. But we're also pediatric emergency doctors. We have unique insight into risks and how to keep them in perspective. Welcome to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. Join Dr. Ed, that's me, and my co-host, Dr. Phil, as we explore the challenges and the fun of raising healthy children. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Cloudy with the Risk of Children. I'm Dr. Ed, and here again with Dr. Phil. Good morning, everyone. It's been a bit tricky to get Phil back here in this studio. It's been a, a bit of an exercise, Phil, in trying to nail down a phantom. <laughs> it's been somewhat of a challenge to get us both in the same space together to do these episodes. But in any case, uh, this is our third one. And uh, today we're going to talk about a topic that's a bit different than what we covered in the first two episodes. Very topical, though. So you're going to laugh a bit, Phil, but I thought uh, there's one way to get you to slow down here. Give me a sec. So I, I stopped by a place called uh, Value Buds. You ever been to Value Buds? I have not been to Value Buds. If you have been, don't admit it. Okay. So Value Buds is one of these places that uh, sells uh, discount marijuana. And uh, as our American listeners may or may not be aware, in Canada, marijuana is legal. And so we've got uh, chains of uh, cannabis stores. So I, for the first time since uh, uh, marijuana was legalized in Canada, walked into one of these stores the other day and picked up a little package of Bud. And uh, I haven't opened it yet, um, it, in part because I couldn't figure out how to get it open. But I'm just realizing now that you have to push down on the top of this thing. And then... It's like a big out. cigar. It looks like a cigar case, like a solo cigar case. But it looks like he's got some blunts there. Whew. The order. So if you have one of these, Phil, that'll slow you down. And so next time, uh, you know, in the lead up to one of these episodes, I can, uh, you know, nail you down and put, park you in that chair and we can record the episode. Our next um, episode will uh, will lead with Cheech and Chong. But, yeah. But it's interesting, <laughs> hey, like this place, uh, it was amazing. It's like uh, a candy store. Like you go in there and uh, they've got all these shelves with product. A lot of it is like behind the counter. You have to ask for it. They have these... Uh, charts on the wall, all these different flavors and products and edibles and so on. And uh, it's like a totally different world. It's amazing. It is amazing. And, and our guest speaker expert will speak to some of this. But I think one of the most frightening things with is just the uh, multiple forms of cannabis that's just makes that much more cannabis around gummies things that look like candy you know your two-year-old you know find something hidden away that looks like candy first thing it's going is into their mouth so you know and then you also see the, the older population where younger people are saying hey this is great for pain here why don't you try and get stoned grandma so i've seen the whole range of this stuff they, you know the they, you just there's going to be a new effect just from having such easy access well in pediatrics that is one of the things that we see is kids getting into their adults uh, gummies and uh, swallowing that stuff down and then showing up stoned in the emergency department 
and usually I find too that people, even though it is legal, people are not necessarily upfront about talking that that could be accessible to the kid to, you, you know, unless you ask a probing question or even then sometimes. So I've literally had families say, you have no idea why your child might be like this. And they're like, no. And then I run a urine cannabinoid and show that they have, you know, cannabinoids in their urine. And then I go back to them and say, I think your child's stoned. They're like, well, we do have gummies around and we made some brownies the other day. And, you know, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the burden's been shifted onto us for sure by legalizing it. So it's been legal in Canada since 2018. And I want to play a little clip from 2017 from the political world. So there's a conservative MP named Marilyn Gladue who stood up in the House of Commons to protest what she thought uh, was the coming disaster of legalization of marijuana. Here, have a listen. I want to protest an ill-thought-out bill that is passing through Parliament here on the Hill. The bill that is bad is called C-45. It has so many flaws it just shouldn't survive. The grits will allow four pot plants in each dwelling, regardless of how bad each place will be smelling. With mold, ventilation as issues unplanned, this bill will not keep pot from our children's hand. There are more new infractions within this new rule that our courts will be flooded, as will every school. With drug-impaired driving and challenges there, the doubling of traffic deaths and liberals don't care. The provinces and police in every town have all asked the liberals to slow this bill down. With nearly 200 more days left till the day, nobody but our party stands in the way. We hope that the Senate will do its true deed and keep our great country safe from all the weed. A few months after she stood up in the House of Commons and delivered that little soliloquy, uh, marijuana has been legal in Canada really for the past five years. Right, Phil? So I think it's fair to say that since uh, marijuana has been legalized, and, and to be clear, not legalized for kids, like legalized for adults, you and I have both seen a spike in cannabis use in the uh, teens that we see in the emergency department. Yeah, no question, right? I mean, it's as soon as you you just increase, it, it just becomes more accessible. And a certain amount of the population isn't going to be necessarily comfortable getting it from a drug dealer, but they're going to be happy to bootleg it from a store and, uh, you know, for a younger person or whatever. So, yeah. And, you know, uh, I was having a conversation the other day with one of our nurses at the uh, emergency department and we we're talking about the fact, you know, th th this is a big worry for parents when their teens start experimenting with marijuana, not just marijuana, but alcohol and other drugs as well. And uh, she made a comment. She said, well, I, I bet this is something you didn't have to deal with when you were an animal doctor. You know, and as we've alluded to with our listeners before, before I be, went to medical school, I was a veterinarian. And, uh, you know, the, the joke is that I trained because I'm a pediatric emergency doctor now. I trained twice to do exactly the same job. <laughs> the kids perhaps uh, don't bite quite as often. Uh, but one thing is absolutely true, and that is uh, that my four-legged patients back in the day um, didn't tend to have substance abuse issues. And so that's uh, certainly a, a, a factor that I didn't have to deal with in my veterinary profession. Um, but having said that, you know, to circle back to what you said, Phil, about uh, kids getting into their parents' stash of edibles, same thing is true with yeah, animals accidental so, ingestion right just around so, yeah so my veterinary friends tell me this too where they see uh, stoned animals come in that's where that's where pot pigs came from after all <laughs> <laughs> anyway haha so as we tend to do i thought uh, we should perhaps uh, frame our discussion around a real case and so i had a girl 15 years old a few days ago who came to the emergency department i was working at south health campus on the south side of the city she came in because she had been vomiting for four solid days, 
had been to her family doctor. Her family doctor gave her some anti-nausea medicine. And uh, despite that, she kept vomiting. By the time I saw her, she was, uh, as we say, dry as a chip, really sunken eyes, dry lips, and really sick. Had been vomiting and vomiting and vomiting and vomiting. And, you know, as we took the rest of the sort of history from her, it turned out that prior to the vomiting starting, uh, she'd been out with some friends and they had been vaping some weed. And uh, that's what triggered her whole hard to solve or impossible to solve uh, vomiting jag. And uh, so she came to us for care. So I thought we'd just frame our discussion with a case like that. I think you've seen some of our cases yourself, Phil. Yeah, I definitely, we see more than we used to, without a doubt. And, and I'd say, yeah, it started kind of about five years ago with just, I think, increased access and more people using it. And I think that often happens. If something's legalized, you're going to get a kind of a, you know, a burp in the amount of people that are going to do it. And then you see more side effects from it. And then it probably settles out somewhat. But overall, I think, yeah, legalizing it increases the, you know, how many people are going to be doing it and how many people we see with these syndromes. So, yeah. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, pretty complex topic. And one thing I think we want to say to our listeners is that I don't think they really want to listen to a couple of middle-aged white guys. Well, you're middle-aged. I'm probably on the wrong side of middle-aged, um, <laughs> preaching about uh, cannabis use as if, uh, you know, holier than now, self-righteous. You know, I, I can still vaguely remember what it was like to be a teenager, a young adult, and, you know, full disclosure, uh, when I was in university, I used a bit of pot too. So this uh, discussion today, at least from my end, is not designed to be, you know, you must never do this evil thing. I totally recognize that teenagers experiment with things. To suggest that they're not going to, I think, is to ignore reality. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree that, that that is just part of kids and teenagers navigating life and assessing risk and what they have to do and drawing a hard line on them often just pushes your kids away. Um, I, I think we need to acknowledge that it's out there. Kids are going to do a certain amount of these things. And, and that's the point of this is how can we be informed about it? Because I think what you're trying to do is put kind of I don't know, a goal, you know, a range of of what's acceptable with your kids, that these these things are non-negotiable. You should never do this, and you should never do this, but knowing that somewhere in between, they're, they're, they're doing things. Yeah, and I, think, I, I think one of the things we can do for, uh, for the parent community and for our teenagers is at least try to offer our perspective on, you know, where do the real risks lie? And, you know, is the cannabis that is available today, is it, different than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And for those, you know, admittedly smaller group of teenagers who really get into trouble with addiction to this kind of thing, what are the strategies that uh, parents can use? Uh, what are the resources people can draw on? And so to help us with that discussion, we're really fortunate to be joined by Dr. Mark Yurema, who is the head of the Poison Control Center here in Alberta. Dr. Urema is the medical director of Alberta's Poison Control Center. Uh, we call it PADIS. That's the Poison and Drug Information Service. Uh, he's also an emergency doctor, as well as the chief of clinical pharmacology and toxicology for Alberta Health Services. He's a clinical professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at both the University of Calgary and the University of Alberta. Plus, he's a member of the advisory board of Drug-Free Kids Canada. Suffice it to say, he's a busy guy. But thankfully, he's taken time out of that crazy schedule to join us today to offer some of his perspectives on this issue of cannabis use by teenagers. Thank you for being here, Mark, and welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
maybe we can just start off with a fairly simple question. Maybe it's not that simple, but uh, how common really is the rate of cannabis use by teenagers, do you think, Mark? Well, to put it in perspective, uh, overall, cannabis is the second most common drug used, um, second to alcohol. So extremely common. And if you break it down into, into teens, um, a, a good number to remember is roughly about 10%. It's at technically around 11 to 14%, but uh, some studies suggest about 10%. And what that means is that from uh, grades 7 to 12, about 10% of, of kids have at least tried uh, cannabis. And that includes all forms. That's not just smoking cannabis, but also trying cannabis edibles and uh, and those sorts of things as well. So about 10%. I read a uh, piece in one of the newspapers I read online last week suggesting that in the U.S. at least one in six high school kids use cannabis regularly. Do you think that's similar in Canada? I have no reason to believe that Americans are different than Canadians uh, in this regard. So I, I suspect that number is probably accurate. And it seems to fit with some of the data that's on the uh, Government of Canada website. Right. And I guess related to that, or perhaps more importantly, out of all of those kids that are using cannabis, what percentage of those kids would you estimate have a problem with it in the sense that they're dependent on it? Yeah. So, in fact, the number that you used is the number that uh, that that we quote for this as well, is that about one in six go on to develop what's known as cannabis use disorder. And so to put that in, that in perspective, what that means is that there are um, not only physiological, but potentially also financial, psychological, and relationship implications on this as well, meaning that it it starts to affect their schoolwork, it affects their relationships with family members, it affects their health, and it really becomes more of an issue of, than just periodic recreational use. So it's gotten out of control, about one in six. Right. And is that in part, do you think, because the cannabis of today is different than the cannabis of yesteryear? So the pot that I smoked as a university student, was that different than the cannabis that kids are using today? It's like a relationship, it's complicated, um, and it depends. Uh, and, the, <laughs> and the short answer is yes and no. It's similar in the sense that the most active psychoactive ingredient is THC or tetrahydrocannabinol. And that's been the same regardless. There's actually over 60 chemicals within the cannabis plant, but THC is the one that's most active. And that would have been present in the 1980s as well as today. What, what has changed is um, a few things. One is that there's been an increase in the use of what we call SCRAs or synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists. So these are things like K2 and SPICE and JWH018, just to throw out a few names. And these particular um, drugs are really more similar to hallucinogenic amphetamines, so almost like meth or amphetamine and bath salts and those sorts of things. And that that we described jokingly as not your parents' marijuana. These things did not exist in the 1980s, and they are incredibly, incredibly toxic. So the uh, so yeah, the point is is that there are some similarities, and there's also some huge differences. Yeah, so, so when you say that uh, incredibly toxic, it's safe to infer from that that this stuff is not good for a teenage brain. Like we talk a lot about frontal lobe development, and the number we kick around all the time with regard to frontal lobe development is the age of 25. For a young adult, your frontal lobes aren't completely developed until you are that age. And so if 
kids are using cannabis and using it uh, fairly regularly, is it safe to say that it is damaging to those kids' neurons? Yes, the short answer is yes, it is. It's actually good that you mentioned the number 25 because uh, as I'm sure we'll talk about later in the show, when we talk about uh, key talking points for kids and for teens who are considering starting it or some advice for parents, one of the things that kids can do is if you if you really feel like you need to the use is delay the onset of use and if possible, delay to about the age of 25 or older for the reasons that you mentioned, because not only are there physical effects, both in terms of the the lungs primarily, but there's also the mental effects, and that can include issues with memory and concentration. There's a huge uh, implications also for driving as well, in the sense that using cannabis and then driving is impaired driving, and it, and, and it doesn't matter whether it's alcohol or another substance, it's still illegal. Yeah, yeah. So I read one study, Mark, that uh, suggested that teenagers who regularly use marijuana lose, on average, almost six IQ points by the time they reach adulthood. And that study was from 10 years ago. Does that study square with what you know about the toxicity of the drug? Again, I wish I could provide a, a, a direct and easy answer in this regard, but the studies uh, that look at uh, cannabis and uh, the issues with respect to IQ and performance, uh, there's a lot of confounders. And what isn't always taken into account is the uh, is the family history, the family dynamics, single parents versus multiple parents home, history of mental illness, history of substance use. And so those things aren't always taken into account. The point is, is that some studies suggest that there may be a drop in IQ by about two points and some find no difference. Um, I think what is clear is that that does not mean that individuals, when you, when you take the entire group studies out of it, that individuals can't have drop, drops in IQ points. But o overall, it suggests that there, if there's a drop, it's a very minor, modest drop. Right, fair enough. And, and that probably relates then to, to the discussion around excess cannabis use and ultimately decreased life and educational attainment and so on, some of the stuff that you read. Again, lots of confounders around that. What about the reversibility of some of the toxic effects of cannabis? You know, if a teenager is using pot regularly, say from the ages of 16 to 19, and it's impaired some of their academic or social functioning and so on, if they're able to stop with help, can they expect to recover quite well from the toxic effects? Or is there some permanent issues around this? Both, both, <laughs> or there, both or ends, yeah. yeah, or the short, the short answer is yes to everything that you said. Yeah. <laughs> and what what I mean by that is that some of the effects are reversible and so, and some are not. So, so the the point is is that if somebody's used, it's not a it's not a done deal or a lost cause, and um, in the sense that uh, uh, that some some function can be gained, but it's also not fast as well. So when the discontinuation happens, what we typically say is, is you need to wait about a year at, at the very least to see whether some of those things return. So it's not like you stop it and the, immediately the, the effects go away. Right, fair enough. I've heard some teenagers suggest to me in my, in my uh, you know, work as a pediatric immersed doc, you see some of these teenagers, some of them have the notion that vaping cannabis is safer than smoking it. Is that the case? I'll start just by saying that um, I was a teenager once, and so I recall that uh, that when I was a teenager, I too had the, it won't happen to me, this is all adult stuff, if it happens sometime later, I'll deal with it, or I'm indestructible. 
And I, if there's one thing I could just impress upon um, upon teens these days is that it, no one is immune from the effects. And so the point is, is that both with smoking or vaping, there isn't one that's safer than the other. With respect to uh, vaping, um, basically the risks are different. So while you don't get the burning of the leaf and the effects of the products of con combustion in the sense that you're just inhaling the um, the heated oils, there's also a very serious disease known as um, vaping-induced lung injury, which is thought to be secondary to some of the additives within the uh, actual vaping liquid. And we're still learning a lot about that as to who is um, potentially susceptible. Um, we seem to think that it's it might be related to what's called vitamin E or vitamin E acetate, which is one of the additives in the um, vaping just to, ma to make it a little bit more stable. But the point is, is that they're really a wash. You will you will get effects from from both of them, and and to, and just to expand on that a, a, a little bit, we see this regardless of whether it's cannabis. We see this with every drug. So, for example, ten years ago when OxyContin was switched to OxyNeo to make it harder to crush and inject, people just switched to heroin. And the same thing with 40 years ago when people stopped using um, intravenous heroin and started inhaling it called chasing the dragon, we started to see brain injuries as a result of that. So the point is, is that while you think that one might be safer than the other, that they're really not. Each comes with, with its own side effects. Fair enough. But if a teenager said, well, okay, I hear you guys and, uh, you know, uh, that's really made an impact on how I think about this. So I'm, I'm going to stick instead to edibles. So if you simply take cannabis to be a, an edible route and avoid all the toxic lung injury, then I'm okay. That's sort of the rationale for some of these teens. Uh, the point being that cannabis is cannabis is cannabis. So you are still getting the uh, effects of THC. And the one thing with respect to edibles is the, the concentration or the amount of THC within the edibles can be much higher than within a joint. Um, or a blunt for that matter. And so one of the things that we see at the Poison Center, and I'm sure you've probably seen in both of your practices as well, is pediatric exposure to edibles that are simply left out on the table as gummies. And in, in fact, from a public health perspective, the packaging of these can be very misleading because they are often made to look like common candies with the only difference being the marijuana plants on the on the front of the package. So there's, there's a, a huge public health issue and packaging issue as well. So just to pivot to the emergency medicine scene for a second. So we opened this podcast today with a, a case, a real case, uh, anonymized, of course, a girl I took care of. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, who had uh, what we call hyperemesis syndrome. So in plain English, that means she was vomiting and could not stop vomiting, triggered by cannabis use. And it's a really debilitating condition, uh, as you know, that uh, requires uh, some powerful medications to get the vomiting to stop. And also means that once they have acquired this condition, then they can never use cannabis again, essentially. Otherwise, they'll end right up backward in the emergency department again same issue um, so in your role as uh, head of the poison control center what are the sort of toxic syndromes that you hear about that you help emergency physicians like myself manage on a daily basis yeah really really good question so there's there's several what one would be the acute single one-time exposure so somebody who's experimenting with cannabis and Typically, that's an adolescence, so 14, 15, 16 years old uh, or so, roughly. And in those cases, I think what people 
still consider cannabis as is uh, is is fairly harmless. Everybody does it. Snoop Dogg, you know, sm- you know, smoked a joint before he went on and performed one of the greatest Super Bowl acts ever. Right. So how how hard can it be? I mean, you see Snoop promoting it on a regular basis. And so, you know, people say, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, your heart rate goes up, you get bloodshot eyes, you get a bad case of the munchies, but otherwise you feel really good. And the point is, is that at a chemical level, what um, what cannabis does is it increases the amount of dopamine in your brain. And so it is it stimulates that reward circuitry, same as food, as sex, as methamphetamine not to the same degree to be to be fair but the point is you still get that reward circuitry stimulated and so that that can do a few things one is that that increased dopamine is also part of the what we call the dopamine hypothesis of developing psychiatric disorders and so some people have very scary psychiatric episodes when they have their first exposure because they're psychotic they feel as though somebody is chasing them they have delusions or hallucinations and it can be extremely life-threatening for them and also very dangerous for people around them that's the cannabis induced psychosis that we see sometimes and phil you probably see that uh, cannabis psychosis too do you absolutely yeah Yeah, no we yeah not uh infrequently and of course the the accusation often is that it had to be spiked it had to be spiked by something else it can't be just pure marijuana just makes you chill and want to watch bad tv yeah but but it is actually the the marijuana itself that's inducing those uh, psychosis symptoms right mark yeah, and so it, and again, I did. I don't mean to try to make a, a a simple thing more complicated, but there is a lot of controversy around what was it the marijuana or was this person already primed to develop psychosis in the first place? And again, it's not really an either or; it's an and. So the THC by itself can stimulate dopamine, and de- and you can develop a psychotic episode, and that may be it. You may stop using, and and that's as far as it goes. But we also know that there are people again, with family histories extensively of mental illness and schizophrenia and substance use, that their brain is already primed to develop psychosis and they start using marijuana. And it's basically like the key that unlocks the door. And so in those cases, you know, when when we say, well, what's the risk of psychosis for marijuana? It's around one in seven or so. That's just a number to keep in mind. So, so the point is, is that that's one, that's one thing is that there's the, there's the marijuana and the acute episode and, and the psychosis. And then to come back to your other point, there's the cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. And, and this is a really challenging condition to treat because what people come in with is they think the marijuana is actually what's fixing them. And so there is an incredible reluctance to stop. You know, the, the mechanisms of, of CHS, as I'll call it, are uh, you know beyond the scope of this podcast because I, I don't want to get into uh, ex- extreme um, pathophysiological detail. But the bottom line is is that it seems to be that with repeated use, and we're talking heavy you know heavy use for months and years and decades, that while marijuana is used very legitimately for people with chronic pain, that when you use it more, that these pain receptors essentially start to change over time and they become hypersensitive. And what happens is that um, as a result, you get increased dopamine and increased other chemicals that result in a lot of profound vomiting, as well as slowing the gut down a lot. And uh, often one of the treatments is compulsive bathing and compulsive showering. So hot showers is one of the things that tends to relieve it. But when they come to the emergency department, what they need is fluids and they need medicine to help their nausea and vomiting. And they also need counseling um, as well, because you need to plant that seed 
pardon the pun, that it's actually the marijuana that's causing the problem because they often have a firm belief that the marijuana is is fixing it, but uh, yeah. it's actually making it work. One of the other issues uh, that uh, we talk about is whether or not cannabis is a so-called gateway drug. You know, the idea that once you start using cannabis, that makes you more likely to use other drugs. Again, I'm sure you're going to tell me lots of confounders. <laughs> yes, uh, as... As much as uh, as much as I, I like to answer things as best as possible with yes or no answers, yeah. this is not a yes or no answer. Yeah. Um, it's more of an it depends. I, I think what is fair to say is that there are plenty of people who use cannabis who never go on to use anything else, and and that and it is important to be fair and honest in in that regard. The other thing is that you can also replace cannabis with alcohol or with MDMA or other drugs, and say, well, any of those entry points could then lead to lead to something else. So um, I think it's I think it is safe to say that marijuana as the sole gateway drug has been has largely been debunked. I don't I don't think that that's really true because again there are people who don't go on to use it, but it is one of the other drugs that could because it primes that that uh, dopamine reward pathway and you develop tolerance to it over time that you need to take more in order to get the same effect that you can possibly, in some people, go on to other drugs to say, I need that hit and marijuana is not doing it for right. me anymore. Yeah, but like you say, you could say the same thing about alcohol even, for example. Uh, cannabis isn't really special in that regard, I suppose. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, this is go going to get a little bit political because it just by necessity it has to get a little bit political. You know, the landscape has changed dramatically, as you know, in Canada in 2018, uh, cannabis became legal in Canada. And so my own opinion is that that has fostered some of the problem that we have today. It's not legal, just to be clear for our listeners, as I'm sure our listeners know, uh, cannabis isn't legal for most teenagers, right? So you have to be an adult in order to go to one of these cannabis stores and buy a joint or, or you know, whatever form of cannabis you like to use. It's not legal for children, not legal for teenagers. However, the perception uh, on the part of teenagers is that, well, it's legal, just like alcohol is legal. Therefore, how dangerous can it be, really? Teenagers go to parties and uh, they get they, they get a six-pack of beer from whatever source. They get a 40-pounder of whiskey from whatever source. We all know that teenagers drink, adults drink too. How bad can it be? Um, so, What's, what are your thoughts around that? Like by, by legalizing cannabis for the general population, do you think that we have created part of the problem for ourselves? Well, well, the first thing, just have, just listening to your question, is I'm still stuck on the forty pounder of whiskey. <laughs> I'm still imagining exactly what that, what that looks like because that would uh, that would be like one of these uh, things that would take quite a while to drink. Anyway, yeah. um, so. I think in in very general terms, I've I've done several talks with uh, with the Calgary Police uh, over the years, and the police have made um, I think some really insightful observations about drug drug use in general. And it was primarily around the opioid crisis, but we can apply it to uh, cannabis as well. And their comment is, we can't arrest our way out of this problem. So, in very very general terms, if you legalize or decriminalize something the law enforcement costs go down and the health costs go up. 
and we're now almost five years into this. And I think it's safe to say that we've certainly got more data with respect to to, vis to visits and costs. We know that pediatric um, unintentional exposures and hospital visits have gone up as a result. And so I think we're seeing um, that come to fruition, which is that the healthcare costs are, are going up rela related to this as well. But I, I completely agree with your comment that just because something is legalized for people over age 18 does not necessarily mean that it's safe. It simply means that you you shift the costs from law enforcement to uh, to health. It's the same way that happened with prohibition in the uh, in the 1920s. Is just because it's okay to have something, uh, we you know we we now deal as as I think we all know in the in this room with the devastating consequences of alcohol on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. So you may be familiar with the Portuguese approach. So in Portugal, of course, uh, they, quite a number of years ago now, they took the approach of decriminalizing rather than legalizing. So their approach was to stop arresting, trying to arrest their way out of the drug problem. Instead of arresting people, they, they basically said, you know, if you're caught with an amount of heroin, ecstasy, pot, whatever, that's a misdemeanor. Um, so you, it doesn't come along with uh, criminal charges. Um, and they paired that with an extensive drug education program. They did not, importantly, decriminalize trafficking in any of these drugs. So they decriminalized possession and destigmatized the use of these drugs for regular users, along with a very robust public education program to try to educate people around, as you said, Mark, around the fact that just because these things no longer come with criminal penalty doesn't mean that these things are safe. And I wonder in Canada if that perhaps might have been a better approach um, to the runaway costs in law enforcement and trying to arrest a way out of the problem. Well, it, you've highlighted a, a number of really important points, and it, it goes back to um, some of the basic con concepts of why are people using this in the first place? So it may be to fit in, it may be to relieve anxiety, it may be to treat pain, it may be to cope with, uh, you know, with stress or illness or a death or a divorce or something like that. And you raise the concept of stigma, which is which is so critical. And unfortunately, in 2023, there is still a stigma associated with mental illness and with substance use. And my, you know, my advice to um, to people is is to 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 look beyond the substance. You know, it's to see that person as a person and to understand there's a reason that uh, that that person is using. And not and not to just to stop at that's their fault. There's some sort of a moral failing, and you know, and they can change on a dime. You know, if if people wanted to stop using substances, it, it and if it was easy to do so, then people would have done it. Um, and so uh, it's it is really an important thing, and especially when we start talking about parents' advice to kids and how do you be an ally to uh, to kids rather than a lecturer. Um, there are some strategies that you can use, but I just I wanted to just jump on that a little bit, just because that's uh, that's so important. If we start talking about how to change the conversation, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about the cannabis space, you know, you mentioned prohibition earlier. You know, in the days of prohibition, everybody um, was accessing their alcohol just via different mechanisms, via the, via the black market. Right, there was a booming criminal trade in banned alcohol in every jurisdiction where it was not legal to to sell it, and 
you know, unlike alcohol now, there's not a not really a black market for alcohol. But since cannabis has been legalized, the black market in in weed and marijuana um, continues to thrive. And it's true that kids, for the most part, the weed that they're smoking or vaping or eating, the products that they're getting are not off the shelves of the government regulated cannabis store down the street. They have their sources that are still the illegal market, a market that, uh, you know, as we alluded to earlier, is no longer being, uh, how to put it, cracked down upon by law enforcement uh, as much as it was before. And so that, that's an interesting aspect to the, you know, the cannabis market that's re still really quite different from the alcohol market. So one of the concerns around that is kids uh, accessing their cannabis product from an illicit source. One of the concerns is, could it be laced with other drugs? And is, is that really a problem? Yeah, good, good question. The, the short answer is yes, it's still a possibility. And again, I think in, in general terms, you've highlighted a number of the important things, which is that um, with the introduction of the Cannabis Act, um, that the government does have some quality control responsibilities with respect to any uh, legalized shops. So you can be more certain if you're going to purchase cannabis that it has been through some quality control process. Now, I will say just because we've seen some folks in our toxicology clinic that still have concerns about that, that there are limits in terms of the uh, amount of pesticides that can be used. So we actually did have some people early on in the legalization process that were concerned about pesticide exposure. And I say that simply just because if you're going to buy it from a store, it doesn't mean that it hasn't been sprayed with something or it, ha it doesn't have a bunch of other things over it. So you still, you still just need to be careful. Uh, the point is, is that if you're buying it from a, uh, a place that isn't legal, so you're getting it off the street, the simple truth is you don't know what you're getting. And one of the former um, uh, chiefs of Calgary Police, uh, Rick Hansen, made a comment um, during our um, paramethoxymethamphetamine epidemic of 2011-2012 that still rings true today, is that if you saw a moldy sandwich sitting on the corner, you wouldn't, you know, go up and eat it. Um, so why, why uh, unless, unless you're high, of course, then you'll eat just about anything. I, I, I suppose if, uh, if somebody, if somebody was hallucinating and the mold looked like something really tasty, but the point, uh, but the point being that, um, you know, you, you wouldn't eat that knowingly sitting on the corner. So why, if somebody hands you something and you don't know what's in it, would you take it in the first place? So the first thing would be to pause and to say, do I really know what it is that I'm getting? And it's also not necessarily the dealer's fault they may have been told something by the uh, by the manufacturer uh, what i will say just from some of my public health colleagues is we also do need to be careful about making assumptions about what is in the uh, in the marijuana because there have been comments about fentanyl lace cannabis and cocaine lace cannabis and, and you know and lsd lace cannabis and these things have a way of of spreading quite rapidly without objective evidence. The only the only way to truly um, determine determine if something is present to, is to actually have the substance tested in and of itself. And so we just need to be careful that that um, we're not mislabeling some of these things that are being bought underground. Yeah, for sure. So it falls in the category of uh, what we've been fed a steady diet of in the last couple of years with COVID: misinformation, disinformation. And if we oversell something as a as a risk, then people stop believing us. It's really a big problem. And with that, Mark, I just want to say it was uh, so good of you to join us today. We've covered a lot of ground and lots of food for thought. No easy solutions with any of this stuff, I, I recognize. 
Um, but you've given us a lot to think about. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today and demystifying the topic, at least to some degree, uh, for our listeners. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you, Ed and Phil. It was a, it was a pleasure to be here. So pretty sobering stuff there, Phil. Great information from Dr. Yurema, of course. But you know, from a public health standpoint, uh, in public health, they often look at issues, as you know, uh, intervention-wise via the triple lens, I guess, of availability, acceptability, and affordability. And I think it's fair to say that by legalizing cannabis in Canada, we've ticked off all of those boxes. It's more available, certainly more acceptable, and it's also affordable. I paid 25 bucks for those three fat doobies I dumped out of the canister at the top of the show. Speaking of which, we should circle back to the case vignette we presented at the beginning, that 15-year-old girl who couldn't stop vomiting. And, and for our listeners, just to be clear, when we present case vignettes on this show, uh, details are changed enough so that these vignettes are anonymous without losing the gist of the case presentation. And so we inserted an IV. We gave her some IV fluids and administered a medication called haloperidol, which is an antipsychotic medication, but a medication that we now know shuts down the vomiting in these cases more reliably than anything else. And so she felt a lot better, and within a few hours, we were able to send her home. But sent her home with the admonition that if she uses cannabis again, then she's going to have the same problem again. And that's often the hardest thing. Agreed. Because a week goes by, and not uncommon, for us to see that kid again. Yeah. Because it's pretty hard for them to leave it alone. And I find also a lot of them, and this is partly maybe the fault of us doctors to not have that, you know, relationship with the patients. They think that we're just a bit like your point before, Ed, that we're just saying you shouldn't do drugs or whatever. And I'm saying, no, no, I know that's what you think I'm saying. I'm saying you can't do drugs. Like this is going to recur. You now have developed, usually pot is an anti-nauseant. In these cases, it becomes the most pro-vomiting, abdominal pain, awful, dehydrated, electrolyte disturbances. These patients feel like they're going to die when they get it. They are legitimately in emerge, and then you cure them with fluids and Haldol and whatever else, and you settle them, and like you say, they come back. So I'm trying to shorten their kind of curve to say, we'll see you back if you smoke dope. Like, unfortunately for you, you cannot smoke dope anymore. Right, which sounds pretty simple on the surface, and this is where a lot of the parental frustration comes from. Because, you know, they see their child sick as a dog and you and I come along and we offer treatment, we administer treatment, cake gets better. We wag our official <laughs> forefinger yeah. at the child who feels better. And they might, and they often, I think, do leave with firm resolve. I don't want to feel that way again. Yeah, sure. But old habits die hard. Well, they're addicted. Try and quit smoking or... Yeah, they're addicted. Yeah. And, and, and so this, this is the... This is the problem, right? So we've, we're, we're talking about addiction here. We should, I think, maybe spend just a few minutes um, speaking to parents around this issue because it's a source of inordinate frustration, a lot of division, a lot of anger. You know, particularly when those kids come back, you know, you've got a child who's sick again, a teenager who's sick again, and angry parents. Yes. Saying, yeah. you know, just leave the stuff alone. Yeah. But it's not that simple. Because addiction, just like any other disease, is a disease. Yeah. That's like saying, well, just turn off your diabetes in a, in a way. You know, just use some willpower. Stop your asthma attack. 
Yeah, yeah, and I like you how know? you're saying, let's talk to that parent a bit, because, I mean, all of us have some tendency that we would like to stop doing, whatever that is. You know, whether you drink too much or you stay up too late for TV, like something that, you know, and 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 how is easy is it to just stop that? It's not easy. What do they say? It takes, what, two, three weeks to break a habit? You know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not speaking to addiction. I'm just talking even just something you do regularly. You know, you like drinking three cups of coffee. To stop coffee, it'll probably take you three weeks of not doing it before you now have a new habit. And typically, you have to replace it with another habit, hopefully a good one. Yeah, there's a book, by the way, uh, called... Uh, uh, have you read it called uh, The Power of Habit? I don't remember yes. the author. but it, Charles so, Duhigg? Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, um, amazing. So it's, so, Love it's it. It's a really good book, but like many books, it's a, it's, a, it's a whole long book. Yeah. But if you distill it down to a basic principle, that's what it is, what yes. you've just outlined, which is you got to take your crappy habit. If you're going to successfully erase that habit, you've got to replace it with a new and a healthy habit. Yes. Really important. And I love that book, not to get too onto it, but he talks about a cornerstone habit. And we've all had that, whatever that is, you know, and and I now I'm going on a parent rant, but back up your sleep time, what time you go to bed at, and you'll start to see things click often where that cornerstone habit starts driving other things. Kid gets up a bit earlier, kid has time to make a proper breakfast. Now I'm really sounding like a parent. Yeah. You know, kid, make sure they've got their gym gear so when they go to gym, they're not as tired. You know, those cornerstone habits. So yeah. anyways, we, we, we should do a, a, a podcast on But habits. But the problem of addicted teens, you know, um, to your point about the two to three week solution for some of the stuff that we do certainly doesn't apply to addiction. This, this is a long-term game yeah. and very, very difficult for families uh, to confront and worth emphasizing that point a bit, that when your child has an addiction, when your teenager has an addiction, the whole family has an addiction because the whole family is impacted and the whole, whole family has to deal with it. Right. So what do you recommend to your patients, Ed, patients, parents, when they come in, the child's got a long history of using, you're trying to get them off. They do have the hard lesson of going through this hyperemesis cannabinoid center where they've been thrown up and feel awful and multiple eMERGE visits. And so so where to from here for that family? What's what's your framework to say to them? Man, I, I, I wish I could just offer up a couple of, uh, like, here's a recipe book, turn to page six, here's the nine bullet points, follow those, nine step program, problem solved, off you go. But it's a lot messier than that. I like the humility around the doctor approaching to say, you know, I, I often say to my patient, like, this is a bit like back pain. Everyone knows someone with back pain and it recurs and it comes back. And so we're going to wrap our brain around that we probably haven't solved this on the first pass, but we're going to have a comprehensive approach to it, knowing also that this is probably, we're probably going to have to deal with this again, where we're not going to throw in the towel and say nothing ever works. We're going to go, no, no, we kind of knew. But over time, if we keep chipping away at it, we'll solve this. Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult thing. And, and one of the things I'll say with parents, first of all, you know, as I said before, parents are often very, very frustrated. They care deeply about their teenagers, um, but they're very frustrated because, you know, they're, you know, often react with frustration and frustration bleeds into anger. And one of the things I say to parents is that frustration, as much as you feel it and anger, as much as you really feel that too, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. So take those emotions and, you know, the way I frame it is something like this. Love the kid, hate the disease, or hate the disease, but love the kid. And the point is you've got to have their back. It's, it, once you're addicted, it's a brain disease. And you, they cannot, just by sheer willpower, fix that problem. 
So you have to have their back always, walk alongside them, do whatever it takes to support them. Understand that this is not going to be something that, you know, it's not like taking a course of antibiotics and, and then it's done. This is something that you've got to be in for the long haul. And there's a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of relapses that are involved. You can go even three or four months where things are really cool and then have a relapse again. Nothing more frustrating for a parent, for a, par for a set of parents, um, to put in all of that effort, all of that energy, spend all that money on resources, finding counselors, doing programs, and then have everything go sideways again in five months. I love that idea. Love, love the kid, hate the disease. Because I think it's just a common front against the problem. You and the kid are on one side of this, the disease is on the other side, and you're kind of facing it. And so, you know, we don't have time, nor do you and I really have the necessary uh, credentials, really, to go into an in-depth, this is what you do for addictions. But there's a couple of resources that I thought we'd just highlight for families. And there's one uh, internet resource called uh, addictionlessons.com, addictionlessons.com, which I have looked through in the past and I've given to parents because it's uh, it's raw and it's real, authored by a dad whose son had alcohol addiction and went through all of that stuff and has a lot of powerful lessons and uh, things that I think families will recognize in themselves and in their own teenagers. And this will be in our written notes too. So if people want to pull it up, they'll be able to see the yeah, for sure. the reference. And then uh, many of our listeners have heard of a psychologist named Brene Brown. Uh, she has a TED Talk, uh, which you can access easily. I think it's been downloaded something like 60 or 70 million times. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, she's, amazing. Written a, she's written a very well-known book. I think the TED Talk is a similar title. It's called The Power of Vulnerability. And I think it's a great starting point for families because you know, to use your word earlier, Phil, that word humility, I think if we can all have humility and recognize that, you know, for anybody who has problems with addiction there, but for the grace of God, go I. We've all been teenagers ourselves. Many of us as parents, you know, if we're going to be honest and transparent and engage properly with our kids with honesty, we would say, you know, I was 16, I was 15, I was 18, and I used alcohol, I experimented with this, I used pot, to try to come across to your teens as if you never struggled with any of this stuff, perhaps, or never used it, I think is not really the place where you want to begin. Transparency is absolutely key. Yeah, I, I think too, I, 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 you know, I'd strongly encourage, and this is often what I say, I agree with Ed, we, we, in Emerge, we're kind of putting our finger in the dike to just stop the, the you know, the initial problem we're dealing with. But to lay that groundwork, like Ed is saying about um, the parents engaging with the child, splitting disease in child, I think also, you know, seeking out some of these. There's such good online resources. I think one thing I strongly encourage to parents, I've been victim for, to this too, is that um, what is intuitive as a parent in terms of how to get away from this problem, how to stop this problem, isn't often the right approach. Go see a professional. And I'm not saying necessarily you have to see someone, you know, week in and week out for years, but seek professional help. So there's counselors, there's addiction counselors, and I think the child needs it individually to help them guide, go through this problem and kind of help them so they can talk to that professional themselves, the whole family needs counseling to talk their way through it. You have no idea how the other kids are digesting the information around this because most of the, the whole family is going to be privy to what's going on to some degree. So get that advice. I always say to my patients that, that sure, you have your kind of three kids in front of you dealing with their issues. That counselor's seen 
thousands and thousands of kids. They've got the collective experience. And we always think our problem's unique and we probably have a better feel for it because we know the patient or the, you know, the, the child better. You're wrong. Get some professional, objective professional advice. Because to personalize this problem, to make it kind of, you know, me against you or to just try for abstinence, you will push that child away. Yeah. And just one other comment, you know, uh, families who are listening to this who have smaller children, thinking this doesn't apply to them. One of the pieces of advice I would put out there is, this is stuff you should talk about when your kids are small. Start the conversation early. There's some stat that I saw recently around alcohol use, for instance, that if you start using alcohol at the age of 13 or 14, then you're seven times more likely to become addicted than somebody who starts using alcohol at the age of 18. And I think as parents, when your kids are smaller, old enough to understand these issues, if you just make it part of your routine discussion so that by the time they're 13, 14, 15 and beyond, that it doesn't come as a new thing. They've already had it implanted in their brain as collegial discussion with parents over the years. They know what the issues are. They know at least to some extent where the dangers lie. And they're not, it's not a new thing when it comes along, uh, you know, when they're a teenager. I think that's a reasonable thing to suggest to parents. Absolutely. So that's the segue, Phil. I think we can uh, take a short break here and then come back with key takeaways from our discussion, you and I and, and Mark today, and leave uh, parents with uh, some important things they can take home. back. So key takeaways for this topic of pot and use by teenagers. You know, first of all, Phil, clearly pot use by teens is really common. Anywhere from 10 to 15% of teens try it. And out of those, one in six become dependents uh, or develop a cannabis use disorder. Yeah. If you're, if you, your kid's around it, you're fooling yourself. If, if you think your kids just steer clear because they're with a group of jocks or whatever else you're thinking, you're right. wrong. Yeah, and the pot of today clearly is not the pot of yesterday. It's not your parents' marijuana. It's more potent and more toxic. It can da damage the uh, developing frontal lobes of the brain, which, as we know now, isn't aren't fully developed until the age of 25. And that's the part of the brain that's responsible for what we call higher cognitive functions, like um, memory, emotions, impulse control, problem-solving, social interactions, and that sort of thing. Another important point to make is that uh, some of these effects are reversible, but they do take quite a long time to reverse. And some of them are, in fact, with chronic and heavy use, not reversible. Vaping cannabis or eating cannabis, as Dr. Urema pointed out, not any safer than smoking it. I really like that point because I think lots of kids, again, they're kind of smoking is a dirty thing that old people do and I do this vaping and it's a clean thing. And it's just pick your poison, right? Yeah. As Mark put it, uh, THC is THC is THC. doesn't matter how you ingest it or smoke it or eat it, whatever. Um, yeah. Because of its potency and toxicity of the current products, it's going to hurt you if you use it chronically or use too much of it. And I think likewise, part of that conversation, of course, not antagonistically, but with your kid, there is this connotation that pot's a leaf, it's grown, it's natural, it's, you know, I always say, yeah, cyanide's naturally occurring too, but we're not ingesting it, right? Like, like all the all our chemical 
think both in medicine and in toxins and whatever are derived from nature. So the idea of something's natural doesn't hold up. Yeah. 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 So it's fair to say that the legalization bit, you know, it's a political thing, of course, in Canada, but we, we are where we are today. But legalization, as uh, Dr. Urema put it, has shifted the burden of this thing from law enforcement to healthcare. And so that's in part the reason why we see so much problematic use of cannabis by teens, but we are where we are and we need to have strategies as parents and as healthcare professionals to deal with it. And so for teens, you know, if possible, stay away from the stuff or, you know, again, as Dr. Urema said, uh, delay its use until the age of 25. Now, you know, you and I, Phil, we have teenagers telling our teenagers, exhorting our teenagers, you know, stay away from that stuff until you're 25. They are going to look at you in some cases as if you're an alien. Yes. And I think I like your idea. We message them young. We message them consistently. We message them that you're always loved. And I have to say a little bit, maybe, you know, this is a little bit of a parenting tip that's always, you know, my parents passed on to me. Little dumb, little blind, little deaf. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to interrogate your kids. They're not going to tell you the truth anyways half the time. Keep an open dialogue and uh, and 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 just, they're always loved. You're always there for, to support them and your intentions are pure. You're trying to help your kid guide their way through life. They have lots of examples in their life of kids that are doing this and and they're seeing the effects on on that kid. There's always that, you know, someone knows someone who's, who's you know, is doing nothing but smoking dope. So, and most of them are not looking to become that. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, for those teenagers out there who are struggling with this, many of them do know, to a degree at least, that they have a problem. They need to know that they can reach out for help and not be met with anger and authoritarianism and judgmentalism. Yeah, because then they're going to spend all their energy hiding it from you. Exactly, which is not what you want, obviously. So as parents, it's really hard uh, to do this often, but to to park that frustration and to park that anger and instead recognize that this is a problem that you need to tackle together and to always have the back of your children no matter what. There's a, I don't know if you know the song by, there's a great song by Callum Scott. I think it's called No Matter What that uh, my teenagers were listening to in the car uh, some time ago. And I thought, you know, this sums it up. And it's, it's a, uh, he's a British singer, I think, and talks about his own struggles growing up and his parents' approach uh, with him, which was, you know, we're going to love you no matter what. And I thought, what a powerful message for all parents when their kids are struggling. Yeah. And I love your final point here with, you know, we don't want to use cannabis, we don't want to use alcohol, but also acknowledging that if that happens, where they are using it and they are intoxicated, whether through cannabis or alcohol, and, and I think this is part of those guidelines where you're saying, I know you're going to get exposed to this. I know you might use it. You never get behind the, you know, the wheel of a car when you're intoxicated. And I will drive to the ends of the earth to come pick you up. That, 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 that is such a multiplier in terms of risk of something horrible happening. And I think that's that open dialogue to kids to say, we all experiment. We always some, sometimes find we've done something we never even intended to. It might have been the first time. But absolute open communication around, I will come get you. Yeah, but that's just what you've got to do because you can't countenance or you can't have your teenagers 
taking any risks whatsoever with regard to being impaired behind the wheel of a car. Or getting in a car with somebody else who has. That friend that was supposed to be the designated driver is now had some and seems to be able to walk straight, doesn't matter. They've had anything, you're not driving with them. I'll come pick you up, get an Uber, get a cab. Yep, for sure. Um, so with that, we should uh, take a short break again and come back with uh, listener mailbag. So we had a bit of feedback on our last episode on the risk of antibiotics, Phil. Uh, we'll just cover a few comments here. We had a comment from someone named Elizabeth who found our bit on Dr. Semmelweis interesting. You know, the uh, bit about Semmelweis and uh, his hand-washing discovery. And she said, uh, everyone remembers Louis Pasteur, of course, and Joseph Lister, but the story of the man who pioneered hand hygiene and blazed the trail isn't well known. So thank you for that bit of color, and thanks for the interesting podcast. Good job, guys. So from another listener uh, named Mark commented on, uh, I thought your comments on doctors being a part of the problem when it comes to overuse of antibiotics be interesting. Don't you guys track that? Aren't there consequences for doctors who overprescribe? This is awesome. This is a good comment on, uh, you know, kind of uh, take care of your own house before you start looking outside of it. And, uh, and absolutely are, and I, and I think it's not, a, it, it's a physician to physician and somewhat peer um, contingent upon us to look and help give each other guidance. Part of the reason we're doing this podcast, we hope medical people are listening to this too and passing that information on. I think our governing bodies and we who elect a lot of those people, those governing bodies need to say we need, it, it's not rocket science to track prescribing patterns and to do it first non-confrontationally to just say, hey, look, you're an outlier. Uh, maybe you need to look at your practice, but also have ways to stop this when this is a real problem and a risk. So great uh, comment, Mark. Yeah, we have, uh, you know, we have a number of problems in healthcare in this country. Our publicly funded healthcare system is reeling on a number of fronts. This is one of them, I think. But as you point out, it's not really rocket science, particularly in this day and age where everything is digitized and, and logged you know, on computers and so on, we can easily track without a lot of effort who prescribes what and how often. And we need to do a far better job with regard to chasing down the outliers, not, as you said, not to punish anyone, but in a collegial way, you know, investigate as to, so we've got this prescribing pattern from you. It's quite different from the mean. Perhaps there's a legitimate reason for it, but let's look at why this is and hold each other accountable with regards to the prescribing patterns that we have. So absolutely great comment. I think we can do a far better job. Leanne, who is a physician, wrote in to say, with regard to the microbiome, and this, this is a great uh, analogy, I've used climate change as a useful analogy with patients. Exposure to antibiotics can change the climate in your gut. Too much exposure can change the climate permanently and not for the better. It's climate change you can actually measure. So yeah, great comment. We kind of look at the you know, the kind of micro picture of the bugs and then the macro picture. And if you change that macro picture, you, you know, you can change both. So yeah, that's, that's an excellent uh, analogy. With that, we should uh, wrap up for today. Uh, so thank you again, Phil. I'm not sure how hard it'll be to pin you down for the next episode, given how busy you are, but uh, we'll make it happen. Uh, thanks again to Dr. Mark Urema. And uh, for our next episode, we haven't really picked yet exactly what we'll do. Uh, we're kind of pivoting between possibly the ins and outs of trampolines or the perils of pit bulls. 
possibly the issue of circumcision. We haven't settled yet on which of those topics we'll do next, and so people will have to tune in to find out. The surprise. It's a surprise. So thank you again, everyone. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Cloudy with the Risk of Children, hosted by emergency physicians Dr. Edward Less and Dr. Phil Ukrainitz. A full transcript of today's episode can be found at riskofkids.substack.com. We'd love some feedback. Send us your comments or ideas you'd like to see us explore on future shows. You can reach us at feedback at riskofkids.com. That's feedback at riskofkids.com. Most episodes of Cloudy with the Risk of Children feature a listener mailbag where we respond to some of the feedback we've received. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your input helps us make the show even better, points us to topics that are relevant to you, and helps us reach new listeners. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Until then, remember, kids are like boomerangs. They're wonderful to hold, but they're meant to fly. The views expressed on this show should not be taken or construed as personal medical advice. For individual medical opinions, please consult your own doctor. Cloudy with the Risk of Children is a Studio D podcast production.